Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We have a very special guest today, Ricky Schlott. Uh, I writer, author now. That's exciting. Uh, you've got a new book out. Yes, October seventeenth, the canceling of the American Lions with Greg Lukianoff. Yeah, so, almost officially an author, which is kind of crazy to say. Well, I think officially it's pr- it's in print now. Like you've got physical yeah, it's copies physically behind me, so yeah. I guess it counts. But yeah, I'm kind of just bracing for the impact of the book, so it's exciting. <clears throat> yeah, well, that's another thing. I mean. Um, so you and I ran into each other on when clubhouse was kind of a blip back in the mm-hmm. day, but I followed your work f- since then and it's gotten progressively, uh, more exposure, which is nice because you write from a point of view that I don't see very often, which is, uh, you know, the younger generation, uh, and people that are like, can we act like normal fucking human beings for a while? That whole situation. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you call that exactly, but that's what it is. Yeah, I think um, just like there are a, a shockingly and depressingly few number of young voices that I mean, I I would like to think that I tack towards common sense and there don't seem to be that many writers that are also Gen Z that feel the same way. Although I would say that there's an enormous audience for it, which heartens me. But, you know, it's hard to actually like put yourself out there and, and you know, like I, I was planning to go to law school and, and a totally different route and this kind of turned me off that entire course. So I understand why most people who might think similarly might rather just kind of go along to get along and put their head down. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's certainly easier to do that. Um, what, excuse me, what, uh, how did you get into this in the first place? Like you've got a pretty interesting background. I know your dad is, uh, you got an old dad, which is nice. Um, Mm -hmm. so insofar as getting away with things when you're a teenager, but I don't know how it plays, uh, growing up, uh, exactly. My dad was younger, but, um, yeah, how how did you get into, um, I guess, from the trajectory you were on, which it sounds like, you know, undergrad, then law school, to, mm-hmm. you know, writing about culture, writing about, I, I think you write more about thinking than about culture, uh, honestly, but yeah, how, how did that happen exactly? Yeah, um, as you mentioned, my dad actually turned 86 this year, so he's very much an older dad, considering I'm 23, Mm. Um, but I would say that definitely, like, anchored me in a different time period in Mm. a weird way, just, like, a small little part, so I'd come home with, like, my Zoomer-isms, and my dad would be like, shut up, I do not (laughs) want to hear you, like, (laughs) use weird lingo, or I I remember being a kid growing up and, like, coming home and, and... having the new like language police uh, instructions ready to unleash on my dad when I was probably in like second grade. I'm like, dad, we actually don't say African-American anymore. We say black. And I remember my dad at the dinner table looking at me like, we just switched this like two days ago. Mm. And it was, it was a very like formative kind of moment in my life of, of understanding that like the, the cultural context was shifting so quickly and that intent matters as much as impact and so i think that having that um that kind of anchor with an an older parent who who was able to kind of hold me steady was um very fortunate also in combination with a mom from an eastern european background Mm -hmm. with a lot of sensibility who would not um tolerate a lot of the the kind of crazy stuff that happened to my world at nyu and and in high school and a lot of the the wokeness so i had a good a good context growing up in, in my estimation. Um, and I went to NYU undergrad, like 4.0 GPA, super academic, head down, had my, my Thomas Sowell books, my Jordan Peterson books quite literally hidden under my bed in freshman year because I was afraid someone might, God forbid, walk in and know that I think differently. Um, and I, I was going along to get along and then the pandemic happened and NYU tried to pull six grand per class for Zoom school, which is the no tuition break, nothing, nothing to help the fact that we were all just 
completely online and bunker or hunkered down. Um, and so my family, I give my mom like complete credit for coming to me. I was miserable doing that. And um, it was just not paying off. It was not the experience that I wanted out of my college. And she came to me and she said, I will help you make it through, like financially make it through one semester leave of absence if you promise me that you will do something actually interesting and cool. And so I just like read and read and read and finally had time to actually read what I wanted to read. And I had like a kind of epiphany moment with like a lot of the classical liberal values and and fundamental like founding underpinning uh principles that that make america what it is and um, a lot of stuff that i should have learned in school frankly um beforehand that that it just really hit me like a ton of bricks where i where i became very animated um especially seeing like during COVID, a lot of uh liberties deprived um in my own life for the first time and i i just it really made me want to speak out and say kind of screw it and so i i started with some op-eds in the new york post and um, sure enough, it kind of just tumbled to the point where I had done like three leaves of absence from NYU and, and finally just dropped out because I'd much rather do what I love and and find my voice than feel like I need to go back to to, to square one. And um, definitely definitely in the, the proud dropout gang at this point sure, in time. Yeah. So that's the abbreviated version. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way, on not wasting any more of your time. <laughs> um, we do have this Thank proclivity you. as human beings to, uh, what's the, the spent cost fallacy just to keep walking in the same direction because we're already going that way. That's fucking dumb. Mm-hmm. So it's good that you, uh, were able to get out of that. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> I want to, I want to, a couple things you said, one about the shifts in language that happen are very interesting to me. There's, there's good, there's a lot of good literature on this. Um, or you could just listen to George Carlin stand up from back in the day, but, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> The fact that it shifts so quickly, you know, what it is, what, what's okay to say and what's not okay to say, especially these days, to me, is evidence that the point isn't to be polite or inclusive or to take people's feelings into consideration, but it's to create a victim class and a victimizer class, right? And then give yourself the ability to decide who's in which group by just identifying who you want the victimizer class to be, take their common language and make that bad somehow just by saying it's bad. Cause it's, that, there's no rhyme or reason to any of this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and absolutely. Th- this is something that you talk about just the, the way that people's minds are manipulated in the book. Um, and we'll get into that in a moment. And, uh, but, but I think it's like, we're, there's a lot of surreal shit going on right now. Like the, the, the author of Manufacturing Consent, Noam Chomsky, now sits around and proudly cheers consent being manufactured. You know what I mean? It's, very, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's such a weird time in human history where everybody kind of knows that these people, these institutions are full of shit, and they're still like, well, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? Because in, in days past, this would not have gone this way. People would be riding in the fucking streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And... I mean, I think I, I do feel like I'm, I'm more and more heartened, though, with with more young people kind of waking up or just doing their own thing and, and leaving these institutions. Like as much as I think it's tragic that there was a recent Gallup poll that that showed that Gen Z's faith in institutions is like through the 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 floor at this point in time. And like, I think that's obviously I'd rather a world where institutions are deserving of trust, but I think that there's more doubt. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm sure for some people that makes them a Marxist and they're not all necessarily going down the route of like trying to revive classical liberalism. Mm. But um, I would say that there is like a, an increasing wake up of, of young people, especially in terms of like not just going going down that that prescribed route of, of success. I mean, the, the dropout rates people tout as like some some tragedy, which I'm sure in some ex- examples and, 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 and plenty of instances is people just like losing motivation or, or succumbing to addiction or something. But there, I know a lot of young people who are just saying like, I'm going to pave my own path now and I don't need to go through all of these rungs, which gives me a little bit more faith that there could be um, kind of like a, a market pressure correction on some of these institutions. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it, it does look like, uh, uh, some of that is, is starting to happen. My buddy Gerard Michaels was, was talking about this the other day. Um, you know, it, like he feels bad for his Democrat friends, especially the young ones, because they had some pretty legitimate concerns 
about things like affordable health care, for example, or mm -hmm. um, making sure that we're not becoming uh, uh, oppressive through majority and things like this stuff that our system of government is kind of set up to, to not uh, become or affordable schooling or housing or something like that. And then the, you know, these, I don't know what you would call them, oligarchs, globalists, Marxists, whatever the fuck's going on these days. I mean, it, it's kind of, all of these phrases tend to become catch-alls, you know, for mm -hmm. anything that you don't like. So it's hard to define them specifically, but they came with the solutions that people, po powerful people normally do, which is self-serving solutions that don't actually address any of the root concerns of anybody. And then they believe because they've been elected, like, well, you know, 70% of Gen Z voted for Democrats, so they must like what we're doing, like sending money to Ukraine or uh, defunding police or cutting kids' dicks off and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? But that's mm -hmm. like, it's a very bizarre relationship that we current, and I, I blame boomers and my generation for it because we didn't, we, we fell asleep at the wheel on this shit, and now you guys are going to have to fight, you know what I mean, to get some of this it's not it's not even just about civil liberties you're gonna to have to fight just to get a sense of normalcy back so we can talk about civil liberties yeah. again you know what i mean it's it's pretty fucked up yeah absolutely and to your point um i mean if you look at the approval ratings of biden um generationally and democrats in general recently um gen z had the, the highest approval rating of biden when he took office mm -hmm. like above even where young people were when obama was president and it had the most precipitous drop among young people it's something like a four percent like very high approval rating versus 16 percent in the general population so i think that there are more and more young people who you know may have voted blue in in uh like landslide essentially but are not necessarily happy with that, mm. that choice or with the choices before them at least so it makes me feel better that we're not just like blue no matter who like mm. down the line yeah and it's well republicans don't do themselves any favors by the kind of candidates they put in front of people no. either frankly um but you know it, it's let's let's uh let's not spend the whole time talking about politics and we're gonna get <laughs> lost here um <clears throat> I want to talk about the book. The book is the canceling of the American mind. And there's a lot of good stuff in here. I read it over the weekend. I mean, it's, it's, it is, um, you can, you can jump through any section of it and read it independently. And it's still re it still tracks really well. It's a very well-written book, which I should expect from you and Thank the you. team, uh, that wrote it. Obviously this is from one of the co-authors of coddling of the American mind. And the other one wrote the foreword for it, I believe. Um, yeah. I, I believe, most of our listeners have read that book and if they haven't, they should. Um, tell me about the book and, uh, you know, some general themes and we'll get into some more specifics. Yeah. So the genesis of the book was actually that I had read coddling when I was, um, I think a freshman in college, which would have been around when it came out and it totally, um, jived with all my experiences in my generation and felt like, um, it could put it, it, like Greg and Greg and John, the co-authors really put their finger on things that I like noticed these symptoms of, but could not really understand the root cause of, um, which boiled down is essentially um, cognitive distortions that that were creating an anxious and depressed generation on campus. And so in the pandemic, when I was first writing for the New York Post and still just contributing op-eds, I was very optimistic and I thought that perhaps the pandemic could uncoddle young people. And I interviewed Greg for that article, um, which is how we first met. And we realized that there was a ton that we had in common in terms of our concern for, for our country and for the state of free speech. And also um, the fact that I just had eyes on the ground in a way that he and John weren't able to with the age difference. And so originally this book was going to be directly a follow-up to coddling. Um, but then it shifted in its focus. Um, I think, I mean, I think a lot of the same themes still, uh, still, ring throughout the book um, and certainly having John write the forward sets the tone that this is in part a follow-up, but we wanted to delve into cancel culture specifically. Um, firstly, because there's still people who claim that it's not really a thing or that it's just a moral panic or that it's something that is in the past. Um, but I would say it's something that very much concerns me going forward. I, I, 
I would have probably been in the camp in like 2019 of thinking like, oh, the 2016 election was really weird. And that was just a strange time. And we did, we had unprecedented candidates and we pulled people down and and burned the house down a little bit. But like, we're fine now. And then 2020 happened and it was even worse than it was in 2016. And I'm quite concerned that this book will become even more um, sadly relevant in 2024 with this next election cycle. Um, and I, I mean, I've just watched pretty much for my entire adult life or even young adult life, cancel culture really um, reigning over particularly young people and causing mass self-censorship and really undermining the the values of, of our country and, and of free speech and of pluralism and, and preventing us from having a robust democracy that actually can talk through our issues and our problems. And so I've described this book essentially as like, like when you try to give a dog a pill and you put peanut butter on the pill to like entice, entice them to eat it. And so the peanut butter of this book is the cancel culture, but the pill is really the free speech culture, which we think is the restorative solution to this. And so it's not just a doom and gloom book. I think it's mm. definitely a call for a restoration of, of some fundamental American values to help us fight back against this kind of mounting a liberalism. Yeah, I mean, I wonder do you, if do you think it's possible to get the right and left to communicate again? I don't, I don't know that right and left is even a thing anymore. To be honest, I don't, I don't, I don't really, yeah. I don't think I buy that premise anymore. And it, maybe it is, but it can't be functionally exercised because everything is so fucked up as far as the discourse goes, right? Um, now, you guys yeah. in the book, you talk about because we're in a game of tit for tat right now. Institutions are captured by powers that have no concern for us whatsoever. They don't give a shit about what's going on here. Um, but people are still playing that game. It's like if you found out that the NFL was scripted or something, you know what I mean? Like if it was just like wrestling and you found out it was scripted, mm -hmm. are you still really going to be a fan of your team? I, I think people would, you know what I mean? They would, they would, yeah. some, there would be some level because of their association with it and it's become part of their identity. Uh, they, they would apply some pretty, uh, some pretty broad ranging cognitive dissonance there and be like, you know what? Maybe it's, Maybe part of it is rigged, but it's still entertaining. They, you know, people always make these excuses. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wonder from your perspective, <clears throat> especially after writing this book um, and seeing, like, really getting down into the weeds on how fucked everything kind of is, is it, what, what are we doing? How, how's it going to be possible to reestablish, like, a cohesive epistemology? You know what I mean? But a set of facts yeah. that people agree on, because we don't have that right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I think the one of the the kind of case studies that we go through um, throughout the book, we we have these interspersed like cancel culture and publishing or journalism, and essentially one of the themes of the book is that this this sense and this like very obvious reality to most people that dissenters in in knowledge producing institutions will be pulled down, um, like whether it's someone like Barry Weiss and with a heterodox view at the New York Times or someone like Jay Bhattacharya with a heterodox view on COVID, this, like, even if someone isn't getting canceled in these institutions, I think that the, the broader public has woken up to the fact that even if somebody finds something, you know, uncomfortable in their research, or even if they might believe something that, that might be a little bit out there or might put their, their kind of neck out there, if they were to say it publicly, that that there's mass self-censorship and that most people are fully aware of that fact and rightfully distrust institutions to actually produce accurate, an accurate view of the knowledge that, that they may have. Um, and so I think the COVID-19 kind of example that we go through in the book and how, um, you know, someone like Jennifer Say, who just said something as simple as like, maybe we shouldn't be shutting down schools and and allowing the the poorest kids among them to suffer the most as a consequence, like her just getting completely deplatformed and, and um, squeezed out of Levi's and like time after time, I think, to your point, we've we've completely lost faith in, in these institutions to actually produce truth, because that's how dissent is treated. Um, and I would say it's worst of all in higher education. We have some really disturbing cases there. So it's definitely, um, we, we refer to it as an epistemic crisis and definitely a moment in time where like just the, the shared body of facts are completely devastated. And we, Greg and I share, I mean, Greg's the, the president and CEO of FIRE, which is the Foundation mm -hmm. for Individual Rights and Expression, which um, is is kind of stepping into um, an area that I think the ACLU has abdicated where they used to just be um, defending free speech on campus, but now 
are doing so just across the board in any context. Um, and Greg and I definitely believe that it's it's a restoration of some of the old idioms of like to each to each his own or everyone's entitled to their own opinion and just like a, a reinvigoration of some of these free speech principles that I think we've gotten so complacent about. And I know it sounds very um, kind of optimistic and naive to say as much, but I genuinely believe that there's like an enormous thirst for for some sort of restorative vision among young people. Like I I was 15 when the 2016 election was ramping up. I've never known a period of time where Americans could like treat their neighbors kindly or where Thanksgiving tables weren't being like pulled apart by by partisanship, by politics, by the fact that we were living in our own echo chambers and so I, I mean, I look at the statistics time and again, if you ask Gen Z, if you ask all generations what their view is of cancel culture, the younger you are, the more positive your view is. Millennials are like totally gung-ho, ready to pull any dissenter down, except for that trend completely reverses with Gen Z where they have by far the most negative view of cancel culture. And I think that there's a a desire to return to a period of time that we don't even really remember because we know so acutely how like shitty it is for lack mm. of a better word to grow up and to to know that the stupid thing you did as a teenager is now like there forever i mean we go through an example of this this girl who was 15 and um she got her permit and she in a three second Snapchat video, um, like sent it to a, to one of her friends. And she said, I can drive N words, a, a white girl who said that, who forgot about it. And then by the time she was 18, a classmate had held on to that video and she had just gotten into her college of choice and the classmate sent it to the college and, you know, she lost her, her scholarship. She lost her admissions. It, I mean, obviously that's not the most flattering three second video, but I think that everyone has a, a moment when they're 15 or 16 where they do something in artful and that should be something that dies with the memory of whoever was around you. And so Gen Z is acutely aware of the fact that we're, we're walking on eggshells. We always have been. And I think, hungry for a solution and the only solution is these values that we've become so complacent about and i i mean i felt it myself it took sitting down and reading john stuart mill on my own in a pandemic to actually even realize these values existed and why it's so important for me to to champion them now but i think if we can actually open young people's minds to just how profound this um, this inheritance of, of a free speech culture that we do have, but we've lost sight of really is, then I think that that's truly the only way forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and another thing I'm concerned about, I, I don't know what, uh, if there's, this is a good phrase for it, but uh, like reverse cancel culture, maybe it's like the easiest, the easy thing to do if you were on the side of the aggrieved, I guess, uh, in this regard mm -hmm. <clears throat> is to overcorrect in the opposite direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? I see a lot of people who yep. both believe and then promote ideas that are clearly fucking stupid just because they're being like, just because somebody's getting uh, canceled or because they're getting censored doesn't mean what they're saying is true. You know what I mean? Like that's mm -hmm. not an iron law and it's, and it's the inverse, I suppose of, um, uh, uh, bad men have bad ideas right that's not true either mm -hmm. Th those are those are th those yeah. are logical fallacies right and it's um yeah. <clears throat> and it's especially easy to do that while the and stand like intractably hard in that position which is also not a reasonable thing to do when the other side is promoting mm -hmm. fragility you know what i mean because that's the that's mm -hmm. the yen to that particular yang um but we really we need to be talking about ideas and not people Right. And this is always the solution to these things. We get in human beings always do this. We get into these periods of hero worship or, or it's, it's a, it's a collective idea versus a populist idea. And, and, but reducing things down to just principles is typically how we mm -hmm. work our way out of these situations. It's what the founding fathers did. It's what the French democratic revolution did. There's it's a million examples throughout human history. And it kind of leads me into the next topic I want to talk about. Um, and it's these two, since we're talking about epistemology and conversations, it's these two, I guess you would call them debate styles 
that the right and the left have used recently. One, and, and yeah. you and you and Greg talk about this in the book, one is the, the left's version, which is the perfect rhetorical fortress, and then the right's version is the uh, efficient rhetorical fortress. Can you break those down a little bit for the audience? Because I don't know if people have heard these phrases before. Yeah, these are phrases of Greg's invention um, that I've been fortunate to be able to breathe a little life into. Um, but the perfect rhetorical fortress basically is um, this kind of like argue you can think of it as like being inside a like a castle with a bunch of walls around you and if someone tries to like walk into your your mental capacity and, and has an idea to present to you it's all the ways that you can just completely tune them out and dismiss them which the perfect one is perfect because the left is quite um inventive with the way that they insulate themselves from ideas the the right less so with the efficient rhetorical fortress. Um, but the the perfect rhetorical fortress is something that um, was kind of refined in academia and you can kind of see it trickling throughout. Even when Greg was, was in law school like decades ago, some of these things were totally um, in play. But essentially you can use the characteristics of anyone who's speaking to tune them out or, or to decide to listen to them. And so um, it's as simple, I mean, you can tune out half of the American population if you're someone on the left mm. who just thinks that anybody who is a conservative or who you can accuse of being a conservative, which sometimes, like, you, I mean, I'll hear the most ridiculous, like, like Barack Obama is a conservative because he's not the right kind of Democrat or something. And basically, you can if, if someone's on the right, then anything that they have to say is wrong. And so you don't have to listen to them. And then if, some, if someone is a male, then you can say like, oh, that's just a that's just a male opinion or God forbid a white male. And so it's like layer after layer after layer of things that you wouldn't believe when I was on campus at NYU of like being a, someone saying like, oh, that's just because you're a cishet person that you think that. Um, and it was got to the like point where I'd be in these philosophy classes and I would genuinely estimate about a third of the time when a student would talk in like a seminar style style class they would preface their point as like as a x y and z and whatever kind of identity points they could put forth first to assert their authority before they even say anything because that was like the social currency weirdly and i remember at one point in time i had said like oh as a woman i think this i'm like wait why am i thinking this as a woman and why like that's pretty much the only card that i have to play um in this sort of game but um effectively i mean you you see it on twitter all the time of like oh that's that's because you're a white male or because sure, yeah. this or that or whatever identity characteristic you can place on somebody where you don't actually ever engage with the point that they're making you just shut them down or even it gets to the point where like for example we talked to coleman hughes about this and and he's he told us like yeah i'm i may my if i say the right thing my race is my credit um if i say the wrong thing then i'm not really black and you you hear that sort of thing all the time or like i've even been accused like god forbid i went on ben shapiro's show to talk about a woman's issue so i'm not really a woman i'm just a pawn for the conservative mm -hmm. movement and um, so that's the left side where it's very identity focused on the right. There tends to be a different kind of fallacy where just because somebody is in an expert class, which I mean, I'm totally sympathetic to this because when and during COVID, I've definitely lost faith in expertise. And this isn't something that we think is totally without some warrant that people feel this way. But just because you have the credential next to your name, then you're you're, you must be connected to whomever or speaking for an institution or just because you're a journalist, then then we don't have to listen to you. And then for some people, certainly in the more MAGA wing, like if you've if you're critical of Trump or if you've ever been critical of Trump, then therefore you're just like a hater and we can tune you out. And so that's definitely we we acknowledge that it's a much less um, elaborate and much less kind of um institutionally backed viewpoint but it's certainly a powerful one that i think on on both sides i've i've watched often just this idea that like oh we just shut this person off because we don't like something about them and there's the the degradation of discourse has been just unimaginable i mean watching this take place has been really disheartening and i think that it's only getting worse and worse and worse and i've yet to see any like social media platforms or any um, public forums really be a, a healthy meeting ground for ideas and debates. And I think this ad hominem sort of attack of people 
is just totally derailing our actual like pursuit of truth as a society. This episode of Citizen is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran operated and supports America's military, law enforcement, and first responders. Get premium coffee delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, rounds, and delivery schedule anytime you like. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. The best value you're going to get from Black Rifle Coffee is the coffee club. As again, you can choose the roast, whether you're like light, dark, or medium. You can choose the texture. You can choose whether you want uh, ground coffee, whether you want to grind it yourself and get whole bean, or if you use a Keurig and you want the coffee rounds and the delivery schedule with a wide uh, array of options for that. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, use the code CITIZEN, and get 20% off your first order. This episode of Citizen is also brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Right now, Ghostbed is offering 40% off Ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. For everything else, 30% off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. If you get the uh, 40% off deal, if you use the 40% off bundle deal, you're going to get uh, a mattress and all your stuff, your base, your sheets, your pillows, all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month. They've got a zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months, that's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you, works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com for slash drinking bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best, the mattress protector, the weighted blanket. They have everything you need there, 30% off everything. Use the code Drinking Bros at ghostbed.com forward slash Drinking Bros. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is forty percent off. Oh, yeah, I mean it seems like the uh, it seems like the right kind of circles the wagons, I guess, or but around people. You know what I mean? It's like I'm going to find a figurehead of some sort that mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know aligns with my worldview and then protect them at all costs. But I, frankly, mm-hmm. I, I find it hard to believe that a lot of people believe. Trump aligns with their worldview if they're if you're truly conservative or a libertarian you know what I mean like he 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 doesn't do a whole lot of what we would consider to be classical conservative things um and yeah uh, certainly uh, that's pretty bizarre but it's also very ironic that the political left is almost exclusively at this point rating ideas based on the immutable characteristics of their author that's that is that might be the dumbest it might be the dumbest thing that's currently happening right now. Just just that particular style of deflection, because it's not only dumb, you know, uh, generally speaking, but it's counter to their entire worldview, allegedly, right? Uh, I, I don't know if yeah. that's if that's still the case or not. I'm not sure. I haven't checked in with a whole lot of liberals lately on, you know, like on prejudice and and things like that. But it seems to be. It seems to me that most of the prejudice comes from the political left these days. Um, and that's very bizarre. Like mm-hmm. in the same way, if you think about the economic situation in America right now, when conservatives stopped trying to curtail government spending, everything became fucked, right? Because that's your job. Like you're the guy, you're the, you're the CPA. You're supposed to be the one making sure we're not spending too much money. And they're like, fuck it. Let's yeah. start a war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we're going to spend $8 trillion. And now here we are, right? Like you, I think that this is the the crux, I think, of this argument and of coddling and of your book and most of the work you you do, frankly, is that we need the right and the left, right, to to balance one another. Um, these characteristics that they've had historically are what keep us in the middle somewhere. Not not like not political middle. I mean, like somewhere where we're not tipping one too far one way or another where we're not being dicks to everybody, but we're also not, you know, mm-hmm. putting ourselves in a bad situation. You got to find a middle ground there. Um, and we're not, we're not doing much of that now. As a matter of fact, this has become one of the most politically toxic periods in all of American history. Right. I mean, like the two, yeah. I think there's two examples that you mentioned in the book. Uh, one is the red scare, the communist, the, the McCarthyism bullshit. 
um, from the middle part of the 20th century. And then, of course, there's the Aliens and Seditions Act by John Adams back in the day, which is uh, we, we have <laughs> we're very romantic about our founding fathers. But Alexander Hamilton trying to foment insurrection before we even got started as a country and John Adams uh, deporting people and arresting them for talking shit about him in the newspaper and stuff. It's like we, we've had mm -hmm. these problems for a long time and we've been better at solving them than we are now. Right. But you think your, your guy's premise is that this is going to in 50 years or whatever, however long this is going to shine out in the same way that these previous periods of, you know, political tumult have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, the number of um, just based on fires data, they were they've until I guess like almost a year ago were um, entirely higher education focused. And they've have um, examples since I think like 2014, it's been a thousand professors that have been um, targeted for otherwise protected speech or speech that should be protected um, to be canceled or deplatformed or fired. And that number blows the, the Red Scare numbers out of the water. And the Red Scare is something that we rightfully still look back towards and and think about. And in fact, at that point in time, and, no, and this is in no way to excuse what happened, but there was a very real and acute national security concern that underpinned that scourge of a liberalism, whereas today we don't really have a counterpart to that. And I think that I, social media is certainly um, an engine that's fueling this. But hi, hi, we strongly believe that historians in the future will be looking back at this moment of cancel culture, this moment of censoriousness and trying to analyze what exactly happened here, because the, the scale is beyond what I think most people even really realize. I, th I think we very quickly can kind of put um, like 2016 or what happened in 2020 in the back of our minds and just willfully forget it. But the numbers are staggering. And worse yet, we, we see consistently with polling um, of students and of professors and of everyday Americans that these examples, it's not just like, you know, back in the day, maybe you'd make a local newspaper if someone got fired. This The way that these, these people who get canceled are so publicly petitioned against or so so publicly um, just burned at the stake basically on social media the the degree of self-censorship that results from that I think is difficult to even quantify um, because everyone looks at these examples and says well I don't, I'm not gonna tread that same path and so this is one of the most kind of profound exercises of, of ideological authoritarianism mm -hmm. because like you you just you burn the path with the person too. And I, I saw that constantly um, having been at, at NYU and like even just writing a, in retrospect, such a benign little article compared to stuff that I write now about like, oh, free speech is bad at NYU when I was a junior there. Um, and I thought that was just gonna ruin my life. And you know, I definitely have lost friends there um, since, since writing that op-ed, but the amount of people, this is still one of the most disturbing things of, of my kind of origin story to me. When I wrote that article and I thought that I was just like on an island alone thinking that free speech mattered or that, um, you know, there we needed a, a rise of a sensible middle on campus. I had people who I like I they were classmates that had sat next to me for an entire year someone who lived right across the hall from me in my tiny little dorm professors that I'd had classes with deans of departments who all came to me or dm'd me or emailed me or found my email in the um, NYU list and said to me like oh I completely agree with you and good for you for standing up but just don't mention that this happened or just don't tell anyone that we've had this conversation and when I realized even at a place as like progressive and truly sometimes insane as NYU, that there were so many people that actually shared my concerns, but we would never have put it together if not for somebody putting themselves out there first. It just, it, it made me realize that there's a lot of, um, there's, there's hunger for change everywhere and courage is contagious, but it's just a matter of like actually activating that because the, the self-censorship is just so pervasive and frightening and, I don't know that there's a historical parallel even mm. to what's happening right now in, in, in at least recent American history. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to nail down. I mean, people talk about whether tongue-in-cheek or they're, they're serious about like uh, an American Civil War. You know, and it's like between who and whom and over what exactly because it's not like mm -hmm. that anymore. You know what I mean? Um, for, yeah. for example, like there's – our our higher education has been completely infiltrated by Marxist nonsense, and it finds its way into corporate culture quite a bit as well. Um, but 
in Canada, they're like, it, it's there's also the Warhawk part of it that's that's kind of bundled into this globalist bullshit where it's okay to be a Waffen SS officer provided you are Ukrainian and now we're supporting a war in Ukraine, right? And and then the Canadian Parliament has given this motherfucker a standing ovation. Yeah. It's like, no, I mean, yeah. the, the Waffen SS was very specifically responsible for the Holocaust. You know what I mean? Like running camps yeah. and things like that. That was, that was not all they did, but that was one of the things they certainly did. It's like, all right, we've lost our ability to think critically now. It's, it's and I don't, I don't, I think, I don't give a fuck about Ukraine. I couldn't care less if that place exists tomorrow, frankly. But if somebody supports intervention there or whatever, that's fine. But if mm-hmm. if your if if your political position on that becomes such a part of your identity that you will support literal Nazis, that you've that's a step that you've taken completely out of bounds. Now, like you're not thinking like a human being anymore. You're thinking like a crazy person. This is, this is, yeah. it's like, it's like mole person behavior. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't understand. Um, I don't understand the, if, if there's a, you know, some overarching purpose behind some of these things or, um, or if it's just, you know, in general incompetence or this is just the equation that equals people being fucking stupid. I, who knows? Right. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I do see these big organizations having secret meetings and talking about making people eat bugs and shit. And that's a little, it's a little suspicious, right? And it makes you think there might be something going on, but it does seem like there's some kind of concerted effort to erase trust in institutions. I, I think, um, it, cause if I was, if that's what I was trying to do and make people not believe in anything anymore, this is how I would do it. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you talk about like yeah this is a moment where covid especially the restrictions and the attempts to force vaccinate and stuff and then the lies that the government told and the censorship have opened up this window for um maybe some kind of social reformation of some sort it is an opportunity it's but it's also an opportunity for the the most evil and bad actors around right and that's how it works it's it's it's, uh, an iron law that People who desire power very rarely deserve it, and the people that deserve power very rarely desire it. But it is—it's—it's it's one of the things that impresses me about the work you guys do the most because it isn't ubiquitously popular because you're calling a lot of people out, right? And not just famous people, but how individual people in their homes think. And it's uncomfortable to hear that—that that you're fucked up. It's uncomfortable to hear that you've been thinking like an idiot, and now that you need to improve. Mm-hmm. But somebody's got to fucking. If if ordinary people who think critically and just normal people don't step into the breach into some of these leadership positions, we are going to be truly and hopelessly fucked, like in short order as well. So, mm-hmm. what kind of did, I don't I don't know I don't, I don't remember uh, specifics about this uh, in the book, but do you guys go into that in the book like how ordinary people can? I know, I know you talked about corporate culture and how managers can avoid shit and stuff like that, but. Uh, and then parents, how to try to avoid that's that stuff as well. But do you talk about just the general public and how this this, I guess, uh, a power vacuum and the epistemology right now and how we're gonna repair that? Yeah, I mean, we we definitely are reformed. The last section of the book is reform oriented, and as you mentioned, we have solutions for um, parenting and K to twelve education and higher education and corporations as well. And how I mean, honestly, I think Greg Greg and my agreement at this point in time is that it's a matter of just fostering the right values and viewpoints from early on and consistently, and hoping that a generation can can step up and actually fix things. But I also think. Like just on the widespread day-to-day person level, we all can play a role in this beyond just like inculcating these these um, kind of idioms to your to your children and and raising them with the, with these values, but also just being aware of the fact that like I mean, Greg and I same thing. Greg talks we we Greg discusses in the book when he was. Um, in in law school at Stanford, like shutting down anyone that was conservative in his mind was just bad. And I certainly was on having been a more conservative person at NYU, um, 
very often just like, oh, if my professor says it, he's he's woke or mm. he's a, a neo-lib and I don't have to listen to him. And so it's not that Greg and I are like perfect people who have a great score of um, listening to other viewpoints. But I think it's it's just this like awareness of the fact that we all have our own version of whatever fortress it is that we construct for ourselves and and all these weapons that that we use to protect our viewpoints and especially with social media it's so easy to become entrenched into them and and to find um little like micro universes of people who feel the same way that you do and then to want to con- to protect that that viewpoint and that narrative that you tell yourself about the world at all costs. And I think we're all guilty of it. But the thing that I mean, I think is just the most restorative move that we can make as a society, as a culture, or even as individuals, because the the genuine like truth in, in my view is that leadership is so disaggregated where it no longer really matters quite as much what someone who's in some role of of power or who's in Congress is doing as much as like, who did Joe Rogan have on his podcast Mm. this week? Like there is a disaggregation of, of power and, and, and control. I mean, I would say up and while he was at Fox, Tucker Carlson probably wielded more power over Republicans than, than Republicans did over themselves just based on like who's who's going to throw shade their way or who's going to criticize them and and these little micro universes and I think we all can play a role of of setting an example and trying our best to keep at front of mind that we all very seriously and very often could be wrong with any given take that we have and anyone who comes to us even if they're the most stereotypical, like purple hair, gender bending, whatever it is that whatever stereotype we might hold in our, our head of the other side, that they very well may have something worth listening to and that they every other person comes to the table with some sort of life experience or insight that we don't have. And I think we've lost the the humility of being able to acknowledge our own blind spots. And, and I'm certainly just as guilty of that often, but I think it's just a matter of demanding that of ourselves and demanding that of, of the thought leaders or the public intellectuals that, that we support and um, leaning into to curiosity and leaning into the fact that like, none of us have this perfect formation of, of the world. And unfortunately we live in a, a moment where, it's it's so comforting to be able to cling to that narrative because things are so crazy. Um, and yet I think we all need to kind of just like take a leap and, and relinquish that and actually engage in meaningful conversation. Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, and the way you talk about things matters too. It's, it's, I, I guess it's satisfying to dunk on people. Um, and <clears throat> we've kind of set a bad precedent for that. I mean, that's, that, that has become a, a very valuable social currency to have yeah. dunked on like people and people in their Twitter bio will be like blocked by the real Donald Trump. Like, congratulations, dude, mm-hmm. you got blocked by somebody because yeah. you were being annoying as shit. And, uh, or, yeah. or we used to like take pride in and uh, shape our identity around accomplishing great things. You know what I mean? That was, that was something that you could do or, or heroic things or it's generally speaking, noble acts of some sort. Um, and now there are a great deal of people who, you know, shape their identity around their argumentative nature and, and, and how they've burned somebody on the internet or something like that. I mean, it's fucking mm-hmm. dumb to be honest, but I understand how yeah. it happened. Right. I mean, we, it, it's classical conditioning. If you keep giving somebody a treat every time they perform a behavior, they're going to keep performing that behavior. That's just the way it is. Um, and I think the Absolutely. the way we talk about stuff really matters. The idioms that we use, uh, collectively as a culture, whether it's the West or the United States or wherever. Um, it's certainly an insight into what people believe and then how they think about each other and just how they think generally, like how they, when I say how they think, I mean how they process information, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that uh, you guys talked about this in the book, like it's a free country to each their own. All these very classically liberal phrases that we've all used for a very long time that now seem to have no real meaning, uh, at least in the American political discourse. But I wonder if there isn't, I, I do believe that the way we speak about things matters. And if you're on this side, what, regardless of what your political affiliation is, if you're on this side of, hey, can we just have normal conversations again? 
well, you better start fucking having normal conversations then, right? I mean, you better start using the right kind of language to talk to each other. Use the principle of charity and, and instead of mm-hmm. like, oh, so what you're saying is, and then the worst possible interpretation of what that motherfucker just said. Actually start yeah. talking to people and be like, hey, I want to understand what your idea is. I don't, I'm not promising I'm going to agree with it, but I would at least like to understand what you're saying. Um, that, that seems like, it seems like it could be a very proactive restorative uh, uh, behavior. And I, I, that's, that's one thing that I try to encourage in people because it is, look, especially with calling like Catholics and I'm not particularly religious, but calling Catholic people terrorists or, or domestic violent extremists or calling uh, moms at school board meetings extremists, like, come on, man. Like, I, I understand why people get angry and want to fight back against that shit. But you don't, you're not going to win over people who are still captured by this stuff by dunking on them because human beings are going mm-hmm. to defend themselves. That's how it works. You know what I mean? It just doesn't, there's, there's no efficacy at all to trying to shame somebody into submission. It doesn't work, right? It, well, it works if you're an institution, yeah. but it doesn't work if you're trying to make them think critically again. You have to give them the tools to think critically, one, then you have to give them the space to do it in. And then if, they, if, if it's needed, you have to give them a graceful exit or retreat from the situation they put themselves in. We're at a big fucking, uh, it's a big fucking problem right now that people who uh, have been wrong about a lot of stuff authoritarian wise over the past couple of years are continue continuously excluded from things. Um, Conversations are continuously dunked on now by people who were right about it. It's like, cool, you were right. What's, what's the next thing? You know what I mean? Like if you're a, a performer mm-hmm. or athlete or something like that and you played well yesterday, well, okay, that was yesterday. You know what I mean? Today's today. We still have to fucking fight and win as a team here. So can we get this back yeah. together somehow? And I, I, do you, do you, you said that um, the Gen Z guys are a little more, I guess, suspicious of cancel culture. I don't, I don't know what it is. Like can you explain mm-hmm. what, explain why you think they're coming out of it and becoming anti-cancel culture because I think it, there might be some lessons there that we can apply to these other people and, and, and do so in you know kind of a graceful way that doesn't embarrass or shame them. Yeah, I think, um, to be clear, I think there's, there's a mass distaste for cancel culture among Gen Z. Um, I mean, it's, it's something like 80% have a negative view. Um, it, it's by far the most negative of any generation. And it's, I, I strongly believe from the context of having seen it play out for essentially our entire lives. And like, even just, yeah, I mean, just being a teenager and, and walking over eggshells or seeing someone like, um, like Alexi McCammond, I think is her name. She was a, a teen vote. She was tapped to be teen Vogue's editor in chief. And then some tweet that she sent out when she was like literally 17, 10 years before it was circulating. I mean, I think that we're reaching a point where when you have a, a generation of people who are going to be assuming leadership positions mm-hmm. or, or getting new jobs who all had iPhones when they were 10, like we're going to have to have a ceasefire on this front because we've all done and said stupid things. And we can empathize with people who are getting canceled in a way that I think prior generations might not have been able to, because we really just only know how, how graceless society is right now. Um, The problem I would say, there's two problems with Gen Z. One is the fact that we also are most often the people who are like running these campaigns. There's a serious tyranny of the minority in in my generation i strongly believe that like i mean the the way that people came out of the woodwork at nyu proved that to me but there's there's a real fear of fighting back against the squeakiest wheels who are very authoritarian who are very much online who are very much looking to like tear down their i mean we we talked to a bunch of corporate leaders who are like these gen z employees who are coming in are like trying to get me fired on Twitter the next day for some like microaggression. So there's a serious tyranny of the minority issue. And then also just a directionlessness, which I like, we all know that there's something wrong. And I shared in that sense when I was still at NYU and still hadn't really like had my aha moment with classical liberal values. Um, I knew that there was something wrong. I wasn't sure what to put in its place. And I, I wasn't sure what the restorative vision was. And I think there's a mass abdication of, of our educational system in actually inculcating like civics values and mm. 
And even just like something as that seems as silly as debate club is something that's no longer a thing. It actually requires you to engage with ideas critically or or learning about what the First Amendment is and why it matters beyond just the fact that you memorize like freedom of press or something like sure, that, yeah. which didn't just, you know, bounces right off your head when you're a teenager. Um, I think the problem is there's there's a hunger for change. There's a, a knowledge of the fact that things are not healthy and the way that we argue are not is not healthy and the state of our institutions is not healthy and our civil discourse is not healthy but there's such a, a dearth of restorative solutions and when you're somewhere like like a college campus where where people are, are saying that like words can wound you and that the biggest fight is needing uh, hate speech laws right now or just mindlessly parroting certain progressive idioms like it, it just feels like there's no there's no one who's actually coming forth and saying like, yes, you guys are right. And you might disagree that there's something wrong with the way that we're arguing. And you might disagree on, on certain political tit for tat, but like in the end, we all agree that we need something restorative and positive. And that's what we're trying to do with this book is to say, okay, what do we put in, in the place of this void, which we say is a free speech culture. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's that's a really interesting point about having grown up exposed to the danger of cancel culture because it, it is probably the first generation that really grew up that way, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny how uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what what it is about about human beings, but we'll we'll learn a new fact and then call somebody an idiot for not knowing it, even though we just learned it like five mm -hmm. minutes ago. That's a very uh, I I, I yeah. think human beings. Um, bend towards authoritarianism a lot you know what i mean and look you can see it throughout all of human history but <clears throat> from from the uh you know aristocratic class and the des despotic side but even at the lower level you know people people will i, I don't know what it is I don't, I don't know if it's like just team politics or some shit i, don't, I really don't know but people are so quick to be like ah oh, fuck that guy he's uh he, he thinks this and this and this so um, mm. you know, he, he must be an idiot or whatever. It's like, no, smart people can have really bad ideas. Um, like Neil deGrasse yeah. Tyson is a brilliant man. I've, I know him. I've had him on the show, talked to him a lot. Uh, and he says some really dumb shit about gender. It's like this, like, it, it's like, come on, man. Like you're a physicist, you know, better than this. What we, we're talking about ones and zeros here, bud, but brilliant minds can be captured. And, uh, just, just as anyone else can. Um, so I, you know, the, these kids that are going through, that are, that are going to become, like, as you said, the leaders of the future, right? Not, not just political leaders, but thought leaders, scientists, uh, writers, people in the entertainment industry, people that have influence over other people. It's, there's a lot of pressure on you guys, to be honest, to do the right thing. I mean, it's like, it, it is. It's not we're not we're not we don't have to fight the British again, but we we're fighting ourselves now in in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I feel um, I feel like there's a <laughs> we've we've put a lot of weight on your shoulders uh, that probably didn't necessarily need to be there. But that's just kind of how it works, you know. I mean, it, it's the it's the tough times create tough men kind of situation, I guess. Because um, you, mm -hmm. I, one of the things I read in your in your book was about the and this isn't to counter your point or anything but you said that a lot of gen z hires are kind of using hr as thought police once they get into positions yeah um, absolutely and that's that that seems uh that's that seems like it's not anti counter cancel culture or at least very sensitive to it you know what i mean or how, yeah how that's you, that tyranny that? of the minority mm. yeah that tyranny of the minority with gen z where i i think that sometimes the the most vicious cancelers are in my generation mm. i i i think there's a, a very small and very scary minority of young people who scare the shit out of the rest of us to be completely honest and scare us all into submission that's a hundred percent i would i would say like gen z is 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 probably has the most disproportionately small but super loud scary mm. like well who is it scary to exactly uh, it's it's definitely scary to corporations because they will see like literally one tweet and pull advertising from a company 
You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Like, but it's, who, who I, I don't understand that because I have a lot of companies. I was the VP of marketing at black rifle coffee for years. We do, a, we did all kinds of shit that pissed people off. And we just like, they were like, Oh, you know, that wasn't nice. And like, yeah, go fuck yourself, dude. It wasn't for you. You know yeah. what I mean? Like we're doing yeah. stuff for people that we like and that like us, you don't have to, it, it doesn't, <laughs> you're not doing anything to show up to a party you were not invited to and telling people you don't like the party. That's nothing. You've done nothing. You know what I mean? You, mm -hmm. you haven't solved the world's yeah. problems. You're just being a cunt, frankly. Yeah. Like, to get the fuck out of my, my office. But there, there yeah. is, like, in that scenario, it does, it, I can't, it's certainly susceptible to it. Uh, our entire, uh, um, our entire culture is, accept, is susceptible to this tyranny of the minority. How do you insulate from that? I mean, you just got to tell people to stop being bitches, I guess. I don't know, I don't know. I, Mm -hmm. Frankly, what do you what do you even do about that? Like Charles Barkley, for example, said that there are a lot of fat women in San Antonio. Uh, San Antonio is the third fattest city in the country, so that's statistically a fact, right? And then they were mm -hmm. like, "Oh, you can't say that." He goes, "Well, I mean, fuck you." That that to me seems like the yeah. appropriate way to handle that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, essentially, that's what we we advocate for. I understand the. That, like if you're if you're a business leader who's been there for a couple decades building your career minding your own business not being political just you know going up the ladder and then all of a sudden someone shows up and threatens to tear everything down by unleashing some like scary and unfamiliar social media mob upon you like i i get how people want to just appease these kids like, to get them to go away i, I it's totally understandable um, I think it just got so nuts in 2020 and like there, there's so many little um, kind of, it seems like cultural realizations that we're having, whether it's like Ibram X Kendi's anti-racist center scaling down and stuff, or we're kind of quietly being like, well, maybe we, we went a little bit nuts and overboard and appeasing um, these very squeaky wheels. But I would say we, there are two examples that we point to in the book. One is um, Netflix's response mm -hmm. to the Dave Chappelle controversy where they basically updated their employee handbook and said, like, we're going to publish stuff that you don't agree with. And if you don't think that works for you, then then move along, which I think is one important thing to just draw that line and say, like, this is we're we're apolitical and we're we're not endorsing everything mm -hmm. that we're doing or whatever. I mean, they they're they're different from like a, a typical corporation, I suppose, because they're producing content. But also another example was um, from Coinbase back um, when they were. I guess doing a little bit better than they are now, but um, their their CEO said that um, they they basically like drew a line in the sand and they said we're not a political organization, we're not going to take a, a stance or or write statements on any sort of contentious political issue at all whatsoever. We're just going to be down the middle. You can advocate for whatever you want to advocate for in your own time, and if that's a problem then here's a period of time where you you can um, like we'll give you severance if you want to leave. And I'm really surprised to find out that five percent of their their workforce did leave. But like that's not the five percent of people that you want working for you. And if people are going to be so angry that a corporation just won't take a political stance or viewpoint, then I mean, that's a pretty perfect example of like there's this teeny tiny little group of squeaky wheels that want to be appeased and 95 percent of people just want to fucking work for yeah, lack yeah, of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. a better term so i think that's the sort of thing where to your point it's just like yeah suck it up this is it, this is how it's going to be going forward we're not going to continue to capitulate to this stuff and if you don't like it go elsewhere yeah i like it it's like the confluence of uh of two good maxims one is you don't have to be faster than the bear you have to be faster than the other guy right that's one of them and you compare mm -hmm. and you combine that with um this this self-selection process that you can create in a court you can create it in any environment by the way but a corporate environment it's especially easy to create it when you're very clear about rules and expectations um, you know what I mean? And it's, it helps to have a good legal team to help you with that as well, but clear about rules and expectations and giving people the opportunity to opt out because most of the time they will, frankly, they want to go mm -hmm. somewhere. Pe people want to have their voices heard, whether they're right or wrong. And if they feel like their voice isn't being heard, yeah. they're going to get rowdy for a while. And if they, if they, if you don't give them the outlet internally to get rowdy, they'll go get rowdy somewhere else and fuck up. Right. Then they're yeah. gone. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really good advice. Uh, so before we get out of here, are you guys doing uh, signed copies of these books, or is uh, I, I know you're on pre-order now, right? Yeah, I honestly, I, I'm sure at some point we'll be doing that. Okay. I don't know. I just got my box of fifty of them showing up at my house. So I have not 
entirely sure what to do with all them. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine at some point we're going to do that. We're also doing um, a little kind of small book tour because we're in if Greg's in DC and I'm in New York. So these are good places to stick around. Mm. But um, we'll be going to a few events across the country. And um, yeah, October 17th is is our, our release date and it's out in the world. I also did the audio book, which was one of the weirdest experiences yeah, ever. Yeah, it's so. rough, man. It's rough. Just... <laughs> It's bizarre. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've got to. You really have to enunciate. Especially if you have a good. I mean, it's good to have a good director, but it's also very annoying. Like, can you read that back? Like, motherfucker. No, I can't read it back. I've read it eight times. Um, do you know? Yeah. Do you know? Uh, is there somewhere online where the the tour dates are going to be? Um, I will. I could post that on Twitter. That's actually probably a smart thing for me to do. So by the time this comes out, it'll be on my Twitter page. How's that for an <laughs> Yeah, answer? great. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Um, all right, good. So go to, I mean, you, you can get it anywhere. Barnes & Noble, blah, blah, blah. But Amazon's always the easiest. Um, the Canceling of the American Mind um, by Greg Lukanoff and Ricky Schlott. Uh, I'm really, it was a great read. I appreciate you sending it to me. I'm going to need one of uh, your books, though, like a real one for my collection. For sure. So, you got it. Send uh, me your address. I'll have some issues for someone I will. I'll email it to you today. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you uh, for coming today. Thank I really you. appreciate the conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was super interesting. Thanks for having Thanks, me. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.